Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. Well, all right then, let's begin. First off, let's start with some facts about the television show Stargate SG-1. The source consulted for this episode today is stargate.fandom.com wiki, comprehensive site that details a lot of information about the entire Stargate franchise. The whole premise of the Stargate franchise began with the feature film Stargate that I have reviewed as well. For that, see my channel. The movie was released theatrically in 1994, but three years later, Brad Wright and Jonathan Glasner created the television entitled Stargate SG-1 and we continued to follow the characters we met in Stargate the movie. Dr. Dan Daniel Jackson and Colonel Jonathan Jack O'Neill. Pilot called Children of the Gods originally aired on July 27, 1997. Funnily enough, the final episode of the series, named Unending, aired nine years and 11 months later. In 2008, the movie Stargate the Ark of Truth and the movie Stargate Continuum were released direct to DVD. In the movie Stargate the Ark of Truth, they continued wrapping up the storyline that they've been working on for the past few years. When the TV show ended and Stargate Continuum is a standalone movie with the cast of Stargate SG-1. And we will eventually get to those, but before we get there, we still get to review 214 episodes of Stargate SG-1, not to mention, at some point, we're going to be adding Stargate Atlantis episodes as well, seeing that that TV show aired at the start of season 7, if I remember correctly. So then, we will alternate between an SG-1 episode review and a Stargate Atlantis episode, seeing that the storylines cross over here and then every now and again. If after all of that, we're still here, I will also be reviewing two seasons of Stargate Universe, resulting in us reviewing 354 episodes in three movies pertaining to the Stargate franchise. Now, if that don't embody the saying, go big or go home, I don't know what does. What can I say? I'm an overachiever at heart. It's hard to believe that the pilot episode aired 26 years ago, July 27th, 1997. It was written by Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright and directed by Mario Azzopardi. A little fun fact to kick us off, Stargate SG-1 briefly held the record for the longest-running North American science fiction show in history, with a total of 10 seasons and 214 episodes. As a follow-up fun fact... The record for longest-running sci-fi-slash-fantasy television series in the United States is now Supernatural. One of my favorite, if not my favorite, television show ever. Also changed my life immensely, and I hope one day we'll get to that. After Supernatural ended in 2020, after a 15-year run, and I couldn't let go, I started spitballing the idea of creating a podcast reviewing things that I love, starting with Supernatural, a show that I've watched for pretty much my entire adult life. Right now, there's a podcast done by two of the cast called Then and Now, members Rob Benedict and Richard Spade Jr. I mean, who can better make a podcast about a television show than the cast? They're not the main characters, but they had a good solid 10 years on and off, so who better to make a cast about a show than the one you were actually in that you helped direct? During the pandemic, I listened to Rob Benedict's other podcast channels, and they're hilarious together. I absolutely recommend. I think Robin Rich got it covered for now. I decided to bench that idea. However, that idea actually snowballed through creating this podcast. 
just can't help but love Supernatural. It really, truly is the gift that keeps on giving. So I decided to focus my attentions elsewhere on something else that I truly love, that I feel is highly underrated. And thus I arrived at Stargate. Right here, right now, all about Stargate SG-1. What I love about the Stargate franchise is that it's placed in the present day. As a result, the technology seen in the television series greatly resembles the technology we had on Earth mid-90s. The start of every episode, maybe even every single episode, I don't know, you always see the MGM lion roaring. Therefore, I inherently now associate that lion with Stargate, because I think I may have seen that 214 times, at least. Okie dokie. Pilot episode. Children of the Gods. Quick catch up. One year previously, Colonel Jack O'Neill led a team through the Stargate to the planet after killing an alien residing in the body of a boy taken from Egypt 3000 BC with glowing eyes, calling himself Ra after the ancient Egyptian sun god, bringing aboard of his ship a nuclear warhead as it left the planet. O'Neill returned to Earth with two survivors of his team, leaving behind Dr. Daniel Jackson. As we learned pretty early on is that Colonel O'Neill hasn't been exactly truthful about what happened on the planet formerly without a name, but in this television show they have dubbed it Abydos, which again links it to its ancient Egyptian roots, like it. However, apparently O'Neill got back through the Stargate after Daniel figured out how to dial the gate again, and they told Stargate Command that they used the nuke, blew up the gate, blew up the very bad alien with glowing eyes, and that the only survivors were Colonel Jack O'Neill, Kowalski, and Ferretti. Thus, eluding that Daniel Jackson also died on Abydos. However, as we know, yes, they did kill Ra, a nuclear bomb, but Ra was up in a spaceship above the planet, and Daniel decided to stay behind to live a happily ever after with his wife, Shaore, formerly known as Shaori, and her brother, Skara, and her father, Hasuf, whom I don't I think we actually learned was named Hasuf, did we? Oh, I already forgot. Oi. But those characters will be back. Spoiler! <laughs> discover, Stargate Command has shut down. Everything is covered in sheets, there's just a skeleton crew holding down the fort while they're step-by-step step emptying the base of all personnel and equipment. This is where we pick up. We enter this scene with Hammer beautifully tilting down from above in the embarkation room towards where the group of airmen are playing a game of poker. Of the five airmen, one of them is a woman. And yes, I'm gonna be nitpicking a little right now. However, it does cross my mind that there are four men, one woman, and it's the woman that seems to have a certain spidey sense she can't seem to shake, and her colleagues just refuse to take her seriously. Did they intentionally write this? The only woman in the room, and this is the role that they gave her? And how would I feel if this particular role was formed by a man? My first instinct usually then is, is then they would take him more seriously, or at least not a given, but as a woman with all the gaslighting and the mansplaining out there, it's valid, right? Am I the only one whose mind goes there after such scene? I really want to know. Anywho, moving on. As she's walking up the ramp, all of a sudden the ground starts rumbling and are now taking her seriously. As it starts spinning, the sheet covering the gate blows off, beautifully done, and the chevrons all light up. Again, beautifully done. Anticipation is killing me. <laughs> Just as they're about to call for help, the gate connects. You see the big whoosh. And still, after all these years, every time I see that thing, I don't even know how to describe it. But I still love that sound, that image, just all of it. 
They now do seem to understand that this is an attack of sorts and they start to hand out guns. What I kind of now like is that it's the woman that starts to investigate as she slowly, tentatively walks up the ramp. The girl's got ball. On the other hand, it elicits in me the thought of, oh honey, no. Like on the one hand, it's the redeeming quality of them not taking her seriously five seconds ago. On the other hand, I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> I mean, they have no clue what to expect. Clearly they were not informed of what the gate was, does, can do, could do. I mean, at least take cover or just, you know, stand near the exit that you can at least assess. Is this a defendable position? It don't seem smart. Again, both arguments, I think, can be made. On the one hand, the girl is the Spidey Sense superhero with the balls in the room. On the other hand, oh, hun, where's your survival instinct? Of course, seeing that it's fiction and shit needs to happen to further the plot. And in this case, to make the next little bit happen... As she approaches the event horizon, she's about to finger the puddle when a grey ball comes through, drops by her feet, and starts to scan her. I'm sorry, grey ball, no. My first instinct is grenade, but that's me. Anywho, as she kneels down to grab the ball, all of a sudden, someone steps through the gate and grabs her by her throat. And you see the big mask, they're different from the ones in the movie, but they're still very intimidating. Serpent guard grabs the gun out of her hand. We see six more serpent armor to the open stargate, followed by one being whose armor appears to have a gold sheen. As the camera tilts up to the man with the golden sheen, his mask drops, and we see a human face with a, a what to call it? It's like a little golden bald cap. Yeah, let's call it a golden bald cap. With a distorted voice, he angrily says, Jaffa, Ri. The camera tilts over to the man holding the woman, and now his mask drops, and we see a beautiful bald black man with a golden emblem on his forehead. While the camera is still on him, we hear the distorted voice saying, Tilk, Kri. Thus we learn that this beautiful black man is presumably called Tilk. Which, incidentally, I'd never clocked before that even in the first five minutes you already were told Tilk's name. But now looking for it when everyone's name is revealed, trying to watch this as a first timer again. It kind of surprised me that pretty much in the first five minutes we are told, Hey, this is Tilk. Apparently it was way more important to know his name than the golden mask bulb cap fella that's doing all the ordering around. Priorities, I guess. As the man with the distorted voice and the golden sheened outfit grabs hold of the woman, we see another familiar little thingy, and that is the hand device, with the gem that can glow in the palm of the device, that he uses on the forehead of the woman, and it instantly seems to seriously mellow her out. Apparently that's another function that this device has. In the movie we saw that it can fling you across the room, and that it can fry your brain. Apparently it can also give you like a lobotomy? Handy, I guess? No pun intended. Carmen seemed to have decided, okay, this dude is bad news, let's start firing. As we quickly learn, and quite importantly, the serpent armor appears to be bulletproof, as we see the bullets just bouncing right off. A huge gun battle erupts, where the serpent armored guards seem to have a huge advantage, so the poorly equipped airmen, even though they seem to be able to kill at least two serpent guards, it isn't long before the four airmen are all killed, though one guard manages to get a call for reinforcements out before he too is struck down. As the camera tilts over all the dead airmen, we hear an alarm going off and we see more armed men getting mobilized and running towards the, presumably, the embarkation room. Fun fact, this shot repeats itself throughout the television show multiple times. I mean, it's a perfect filler shot. We also see a wide door of all wide doors. Like, dude, the door is like, what, 10 feet thick? Closing. Shortly thereafter, we return to the gate room where we see again that the gate is activated and the only remaining occupants are now the dude in the golden outfit, Tilk, and the female airman. 
In walks General George Hammond. Oh, how I love that man. Played by the amazing actor Donis Davis, who unfortunately has since passed. He now too yells, hold your fire, clearly showing that he's the man in charge. Before the head of the serpent armored golden mask locks back up, he makes eye contact with General George Hammond and his eyes glow. We see the general visibly shaken by that display of alienness, I think is the word. The man with the golden serpent armor walks through the gate. The last two serpent guards follow with the woman, still held hostage by them, and the gate disconnects, leaving our general and his men standing alone in a now deserted gate room. The next shot just before the introduction song is beautiful. The way that they tilt from behind the gate, through the gate, down onto the ramp, while General walks up the ramp, visibly shaken, ending with him getting this look of determination, which leaves you with the feeling of, okay, it is on. Good way to start a show. We see the beautiful mask close, like way, way, way up close. You can't even see that it's a mask, but well, you know, you know. And we see the name in all caps of Richard Dean Anderson. And as a millennial, for so long, I associated that name with MacGyver. I don't know if anyone listening to this is from that age or a little older, or if you're younger. Richard Dean Anderson was synonymous to MacGyver. The dude can do anything and everything and build anything out of everything. Basically became a verb, like to MacGyver something, as in to create something out of seemingly inconsequential random objects. I know that they rebooted the television show. Like, I've tried to watch an episode, but I didn't get the vibe that I got from from the MacGyver television show with Dean Anderson. I saw Richard Dean Anderson at a Comic-Con convention. He said that they approached him, but that he didn't have any interest in being an active participant or part of the revival. And I don't know if it's I've had my MacGyver day or just that the reboot idea just didn't sit well with him and I can't fault him because I too know. I've tried. A little. I mean, Richard Dean Anderson is my MacGyver and I like Hawaii Five-0, I really do, but MacGyver and Magnum P.I. I'm sorry, people. The originals were better. If something is Good, don't reboot it. The original show was successful and has a very strong following still. When you revive the idea, the franchise, or reboot a show, you got to come out swinging, honey. If you don't, the fans of the OG shows will not thank you for it. And like I said, multi shows that they've rebooted, I did not like. And I try because more of what you love, yay! But if it's hurting the memory, don't give it like five to ten years for the OG fans to either get distracted with another shiny toy or just, I don't know, <laughs> just either stay true to the formula, preferably with some recurring cast members or just no touching, like don't ruin it. And I think I quite possibly jinxed it because as I'm recording this, I learned that they are gonna make a new Stargate movie and possibly even revive the television shows or reboot it, not revive it. I mean, if only. I would love to see SG-1 back in the saddle. Although that also has its own dangers as in Gilmore Girls did a revival and it was nice and lovely, you know, to see all the familiar faces, but then I hated what they did to the Luke and Lorelai storyline. And I really did not like, and according to reports, that's exactly what the writer always envisioned Rory's story to become, but that Rory would walk the exact same life path as her mother. That she would just do a copy-paste? No. I'd hope to see that Rory actually became better, stronger for it, and got her happily ever after. I mean, that's why we watch those rom-com television series, right? To see people learn and grow and break generational traumatic cycles. And I mean, growing up with the father that she had, father like Christopher, I'd call that traumatic for any girl. I think that's what got me most. My whole shtick in life is that you learn, grow and develop as a person and break generational patterns. So yeah, color me disappointed. 
but I reserve judgment. I will watch it and I will review it and see how I feel about it. But instead of going like, yay, more Stargate stuff, I thought like, oh no, don't ruin it. Oh, but that's, I think because I'm now again full on into the television show that I love so very much and just again fear that they're gonna ruin it or taint it or just, and I mean, it's there. You can't ruin it, ruin it because it will always be there as is. But sometimes learning new stuff, seeing new stuff, it ruins the memory or it changes how you can feel about it. I mean, granted, it was the same television series, but if you're not up to date on NCIS, plug your ears for a minute or fast forward. <laughs> That's the benefit of a podcast. But I love, love, loved the Ziva character, truly. She'd been dead for many, many seasons. The storyline was completely wrapped up. I loved her character. I was very sad to see her go, but you know, it happened. And then, fuck me, they brought her back. And on the one hand, I was like, she's alive, which was awesome. But then what they did to her character, I did not like. They made her, for the lack of a better term, a jellyfish. Well, she, in my mind, represented strength and empowerment. It's a strong, powerful woman. And then they brought her back and they made her mentally unstable. But, I mean, she had gone through some shit before and she always came out stronger for it. And her and, and Gibbs, the relationship that they had, I thought was a disservice. How they addressed that now, just, it broke my heart. It made me stop watching the television series that I up until then had watched for 17 years. They reintroduced a, such a beloved character in such a way that it, in my opinion, did a tremendous disservice to what they spent years building. A female character that was strong, powerful, she had gone through some horrible crap, but she came out stronger in the end. She seemed to get her happily fucking ever after, seemingly finding peace in who she is, what happened to her, how her life had turned out. She finally chose her own path. Then not only did they bring her back so tormented and broken, they again linked it to her brother. I mean, yes, Ari was the best, greatest baddie on the TV show that they kept using again and again and again. But after 16 years, people find a new fucking villain. Stop making her entire world everything that that woman suffered because of her brother. But after everything, why did they now again made her suffer so greatly for an act that she committed that he for 100% had coming? And then they didn't even wrap it up nicely. We didn't even get the Nozo and Ziva reunion with Tali. At least give us that. Apologies. That was my brain fart train derailment about revivals and reboots. You're welcome. I'm just for now gonna choose to ignore it. So as you can clearly tell, this is the reason why I didn't start out with NCIS. No, it's a show I love greatly. They lost me after this crap hole of a plot. Okay, I love from beginning to end. <laughs> so that's why we started here. Let's get back to that. Apologies, truly. <laughs> With Richard Dean Anderson, there are two very distinct parts that he played where he just nailed it. I think with Richard Dean Anderson, the difference is in MacGyver, he was very serious, or at least I remember it being a very serious show. Engaging, and there was some some humor in it, but not like in Stargate. In Stargate, he's goofy. He can be. He's a commanding officer, and you take him seriously, and you, in my opinion, he is what a commanding officer should be. Same with Donna Davis as General George Hemma, just... I know it's a television show, it's fiction, but the humanity that they bring to the character, the moral compass that sometimes overrides their orders. That is what I love about this show. Even though it's brought to us from a military perspective, from the Air Force, a place run on hierarchy and order and rules, the humanity that they bring, I found inspiring. 
Richardine Anderson asked the writers of the television series to make his character distinctly different than the character that Kurt Russell played, even though it was inherently the same character, as in Colonel Jonathan Jacconi. Maybe to distinguish the roles from another MacGyver kind of role. I don't know if that was also his reasoning to ask this, but he distinctly told the writers of the television show he wanted to portray the character of Colonel Jack O'Neill differently, not as, as heavy and as moody broody as Kurt Russell portrayed the character as it was written back then. So to make it the same character yet distinctly different, they altered the name to write it with two L, which became a running joke in the television series. So watch out for those. I mean, why wouldn't you want to preserve the character? It was a beautifully laid out character. As I mentioned in my previous podcast about the Stargate movie, just in a few minutes, they gave us so much background, so much depth to the characters of Daniel Jackson and Jack O'Neill. And yes, I agree, they wholly deserve additional 10 seasons and 3 movies. The more. Let's pace ourselves. This is still the first episode, and I think we're even in the first 5 minutes of a 2-hour episode. So, let's get going. Those in the know notice font is distinctly different from the movies. And if you want to know the significance of that, I refer you to my podcast of Stargate the Movie. There was a whole exposition, educational, but lordy, the intense emotions that people can have about a font. And yet, after I delved into the reasoning, I get it. What can I say? Papyrus font elicits strong emotions in people. I mean, it's even got its own SNL skit. Go watch it. It's on YouTube. It's hilarious. It's with Ryan Gosling. After we're shown Richard Dean Anderson's name, the name of the show, Stargate SG-1, is shown. And in it, they wisely chose to make the second A, the symbol that we learned in the movie, presents Earth, also is the point of origin symbol on the Stargate. It is safe to say that this symbol, the Earth symbol, continues to be of great importance to the show and to the franchise as a whole. As well as myself, as you will have learned by listening to my podcast episode on the movie. Episode picks up with a car arriving at Jack O'Neill's house, and apparently he's not inside, he is on the roof. We see a Major Samuels going to talk to Colonel Jack O'Neill. We see Jack looking through a telescope, and he mentions to the Major that he should get himself reassigned to NASA because that's where all the action is going to be, which technically could be considered naughty, as in, hello, confidential, you know shit, I get that. But up until that point, he didn't know that Major Samuels worked for Stargate Command. After disclosing that he was sent by General Hammond, who replaced General West, the man that we knew led the Stargate command program in the movie, and referencing that he has been called in concerning the Stargate, retired Colonel O'Neill drops his, I guess you could call it free-loving attitude, and turns serious. And he joins Major Samuels at Stargate Command, where he is introduced to General George Hammond. Can I just say that Major Samuels just irks me from the get-go? Am I the only one? To me, he comes across as a smarmy-ass ass. And I instantly like George Hammond, and I instantly like Jack O'Neill, but Major Samuels, I don't know exactly what it is, but somehow he just makes you want to punch him in the face. Repeatedly. I mean, throughout the episode, he becomes more smarmy and more assy, so. <laughs> but lordy, I never learned to like him. How about y'all? Did anyone ever learn to love Major Samuels? What I love about the meet-cute, if you want to call it, between Jack O'Neill and General Hammond is that, one, O'Neill keeps saying retired with a sassy little attitude, which I can appreciate, but also that General Hammond starts the conversation asking a question that you did not expect him to start off with. Like, he catches him off guard from the get-go. I like that. 
It's the type of banter that continues throughout the show between these two characters. And I am here for it. Next, they take O'Neill down to the morgue to show him the dead serpent guard that they killed, where they all redundantly note that the dude ain't human. Well, yeah, he has a marsupial kangaroo kind of like pouch, but well spotted. They babble on about weaponry, and this is where it gets interesting, because Samuel's smarmy dick, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna keep calling him smarmy something, says we can't figure out how they operate, and then here is awesome awesome Colonel O'Neill, and he just handles it like he's been doing it every day, all day, and he unlocks the staff weapon and he locks it again and I mean there is just one button people you can't tell me that with all your weaponry skills you couldn't figure out how to work a singular button huh. General Hammond then discloses that the man that he witnessed also had glowing eyes, just as O'Neill reported in his Meadows mission report that Ra had. When Hammond mentions this to O'Neill, he's taking it seriously now. When O'Neill, Kowalski, and Freddy refuse to reveal anything other than what was in their reports, Hammond discloses that he intends to send a nuclear bomb through the Stargate to Abydos, believing that the aliens could only have come from there and hoping to destroy whoever came through so that what happened at Stargate Command will never be repeated. In General Hammond's demeanor, we clearly see that he knows O'Neill's hiding something. He questioned him about Daniel. It wasn't a secret that O'Neill didn't like Daniel, but O'Neill's response quickly dissuades any doubt that there was something there that he's trying to hide. And it isn't until they are at the gate and he sees the bomb and General kind of smugly like, okay, we're going to send this bomb, that O'Neill knows that he's being caught out and that he now has to confess. O'Neill reveals that he lied about the bomb destroying the planet, the gate, and that the bomb was in fact aboard the ship where the alien Ra was, and thus Ra was destroyed, but that the Abdominians are still alive and living in freedom with Dr. Jackson living among them, causes General Hammond to lose his cool. After some meeting with his superiors, Hammond allows O'Neill to send a message through the gate. Instead of sending a probe, lordy, we've got aliens, probes, so many jokes to be had, but it's still the first episode, I'm a refrain. For now. O'Neill quickly notes that they don't need any big probe shipped in from somewhere or other. He'll just send a tissue box, explaining that when Daniel Jackson receives it, he knows that it came from Jack O'Neill and not some other smarmy, schmuckety force personnel that believes that Daniel is presumably dead and the Abedonians are dead. So not to respond, but in doing so, O'Neill now signals to Daniel, Yoo-hoo, we need to talk. Smarmy ass notes, but what if the aliens get it? Like, all seriousness. And then O'Neill says, well, then they're blowing their noses right now. It's the little thing, and I love it. The tissue box, empty, because the dude is smart, is returned through the gate with the text on it. Thanks, send more. O'Neill is recalled to active duty and regains his rank of colonel. Jump ahead to the next morning where there is a mission briefing at 0800. We see Colonel O'Neill in his suit. I love a man in a uniform. I don't know what it is, but it really is a thing. Like a uniform, suit and tie. Oh, daddy. A team is formed by Colonel Jack O'Neill, Kowalski, Peretti, and they are now joined by Captain Carter, theoretical astrophysicist, a scientist, a doctor, and a lady! Because apparently Sam Carter is Samantha Carter. Now, I do love Samantha Carter, but the early introduction bit here with the mission briefing, where she goes all moon-eyed and goes, I feel like I've been preparing for this my whole life. No, that made me horrible. 
like first the whole uh, played with dolls bit and then I've been preparing for this my whole life. Those lines in my eyes are such a disservice to her character. It just got awkward. And then he's trying to big dick energy do her by equating Stargate travel to pulling HEs and she thankfully gained some cred by saying yes I know how that feels. But just oh it all just signifies to me tiny dick energy not to mention yes I do so love a man in a suit. I really do. It makes me tingle. However, the female suits such a turn off. Why are the women required to wear pencil skirts? They're confining. Just give a girl some pants, would you? I find it sexist, personally, that the official female Air Force suit of a woman has to be a skirt. Just ugh. pants are gender neutral. Plus, trying to fight or run in a pencil skirt, not easy. Unless you hike that little fucker up, but then it's like over your butt and then you show your butt and that's not very ladylike. And then you got a whole other discussion about public indecency and then you get in trouble for that. It ain't easy being a lady in a man's world. Next, we come up to the whole confusing bit about rank. O'Neill tries to reference her as a doctor and she corrects him saying it's appropriate to refer to a person by their rank, not their salutation. You should call me captain, not doctor. For non-military folk, that's a little confusing, but okay, so everyone else can call her doctor, but when you are in the Air Force yourself, you have to call her captain. Noted. O'Neill tries to resist because he doesn't want a scientist on his team trying to make us think that it's about that and not the part that she's a woman. And here we thought that he abandoned his prejudice against nerds after first greatly disliking but learning to seriously appreciate and value Dr. Daniel Jackson. But okay, apparently not. My mistake? Carter continues on saying I'm an Air Force officer just like you are, Colonel. O'Neill kind of amps up the creep factor by responding, oh, this has nothing to do with you being a woman. I like women. I have a problem with science. Just the way that he says I like women, it's unprofessional and just creepy. She tries to big dick energy back by saying that she logged over 100 hours in enemy airspace, that she's tough. It just, it's uncomfortable. There does seem to be a little banter, like she's amusing O'Neill, and thank god later on they become a whole hell of a lot less creepy and awkward and they become a lot more professional, sometimes a little flirty, but this just creeped me out. Apparently later, Amanda Tapping, who plays Sam Carter, states that that's one of the worst lines she's ever gotten. The line about that her reproductive organs are on the inside instead of the outside. And I remember back in the day when I heard that line, I was like, oh, boom, I need to remember that. Because in the 90s, that to me was, thank you. A woman standing up to a man who was being all uncomfortable because she's a lady and this, this is a man's occupation and whatnot, bullshit or other. But yeah, now awkward and ew, we're who needs to talk about reproductive organs? Again, we see the great whoosh as the Stargate activate. The team walks through the gate, and I love this little moment. It appears that Ferretti and Kowalski, they know what to expect, so they just waltz on through. And then the other two guys that have never been through the Stargate, you see them hesitate for a second before they then also step through the gate. Next, we see Colonel O'Neill and Carter walking up the ramp, and then he innocently says, Captain. Carter says, oh, don't worry, Colonel, I won't let you down. Again, with the mooning. Just, no, honey. He continues by saying, ladies first. As they continue to walk up to, towards the gate, she apparently feels the need to say, oh, you really will like me once you get to know me. Because for a woman to be able to do her job, it's so very important for the man to like her. And he responds, oh, I adore you already, Captain. Just, that is not professional banter. Just for a quick second, imagine two men talking like this. Not cool. And then she, which I then do appreciate, geeks out at the event horizon. As she starts fingering the puddle, you see it respond similarly to when you touch water. And I gotta say, beautifully done. I don't know why they thought 
about that special effect. It, it's beautiful. She just keeps ogling the gate and he, the adorable factor seems to wear off. O'Neill just shoves her on through. Next, we see O'Neill emerge through the gate and it dissipates behind him. He approaches Carter again, little nitpicky me. It's only the woman appears genuinely affected by gate travel. The other men all seem to be fine. Suddenly, all sides, people emerge pointing guns at them when Daniel pops up. Okay, I haven't seen this show in, I think, well over 10 years. The moment that Michael Shanks, aka Daniel Jackson, appears on screen here, my mind goes like, oh god, I have a type. As in, at that exact moment, he looks a lot like young Jensen Ackles. I never clocked that before, that they look so similar. Guess you learn something new about yourself every day. <laughs> Neil seemingly just ignores Daniel and walks up to Skara, who stands behind Daniel. Skara salutes O'Neill. The boys have their moment, and in comes Sharae. Daniel beckons her. O'Neill approaches her, and something that makes me a little is that she looks to Daniel for permission to shake his hand. It's a small gesture, and I know in certain cultures that is the way a woman is supposed to behave. Daniel was supposed to be different, or so I hope. That kind of subservient behavior of a woman towards her husband just there. Mm -mm. Plus, it doesn't align with how Daniel later describes her. While they're having this little moment, Carter was having a moment of her own studying the dial home device. This was the device that we didn't see in the movie about how to operate the gate. And here comes our first beloved MacGyver reference. She's going on and on about how it's amazing that this was missing from the Dicket Giza, that this is how they controlled the gate, and it took them 15 years and three supercomputers to MacGyver a system for Earth's gate. It's kind of a cute moment. Then O'Neill tries to capture her attention by calling out, and she finally turns around, introduces herself to Dr. Jackson as Dr. Samantha Carter. O'Neill, being his sassy, snippy little self, says, I thought you wanted to be called Captain. And she studiously ignores him. Smart girl. O'Neill discloses that six hostile aliens came through the gate on Earth and that they looked a lot like Ra. Daniel immediately responds that they didn't come from Abydos. The boys take shifts guarding, and this is a little fun fact, the gate 36 hours a day every day, so apparently the days on Abydos last 36 hours as opposed to our 24 hours. That afterwards didn't seem to have any relevance, but hey, it's a nice little nugget, I guess. As they're all gathered around to eat, there's a fun little bit between Skara and O'Neill with the moonshine. Next, and this is a callback to that scene in the movie where they were bonding over O'Neill smoking cigarettes, which thankfully Richard Dean Anderson doesn't do, and they still kept that token of that bonding moment in the TV show, referencing it as such, which is nice. They found a way to preserve it. Next, we learn that Daniel discovered that the Stargate doesn't just go from Earth to Abydos, but they can go to a multitude of places. As Daniel, he says goodbye to Sharae, saying that he's gonna show them something. And this kind of strikes me as odd. Before, she was very demure, very shy. And now she just grabs a hold of his face and sucks it off. Like, that is some serious PDA right there. Which, it's adorable because it stuns Daniel into complete silence. Clearly, Big Boy needs a minute for the blood to go back to his upstairs brain. Again, just as in the movie, we see them exit the temple, walking down the ramp with the shot of the giant pyramid in the background. Beautiful shot. Good thing they recycled that one. Though I wonder why they deleted moons in the sky. In the movie, that was a beautiful shot and clearly signified that we weren't on Earth anymore. But here they seem to have deleted the moons. Hmm, shame. 
Daniel leads O'Neill, Kowalski, and Carter to a large cavernous room that has innumerable hieroglyphs on the wall. Walking in, they make a funny by making Daniel say, Captain Doc, you're gonna love this, stating that Daniel too is confused with the whole rank title naming thing. Daniel reveals that he believes that the walls are actually a map of coordinates of a vast network of stargates across the Milky Way. So both he and Samantha Carter have to admit that they've tried hundreds of permutations. The only successful established wormhole between two planets has been between Abydos and Earth. Carter instantly has a, a Dr. Jackson crush, just like the rest of us. She starts to ramble on in some astrophysic language saying the expanding universe, stellar drift, their coordinates indeed could have changed, explaining that the gate between Abydos and Earth probably works because it's the closest planet in the network to Earth. This remark could be seen as quite ironic, seeing that in the movie, they claimed that Abydos was on the other side of the known universe. Not even galaxy, universe. So now we're stating the exact opposite, that the reason the gate connected between Earth and Abydos is actually, relatively, they are the closest in a network of possible thousand stargates throughout our galaxy, let alone the universe. Incidentally, this does allow us to make multiple TV shows, an entire franchise, about visiting all these planets and galaxies in the universe. So, roll with it. Meanwhile, the camera pans to Kowalski and O'Neill exchanging dumbfounded looks like, what are we doing here? With all the nerd speak, which, again, is adorable. Carter explains, any civilization advanced enough to build a gate network will be able to compensate for 50,000 years of stellar drift. O'Neill finally seems to realize that, yes, indeed, the Stargate can go to other places. That could mean the alien could have come from and which then all of a sudden becomes a very scary thought. But O'Neill and the others are gone, everyone continues celebrating with Ferretti remarking to one soldier that they've got to give Daniel credit because Sharae is one beautiful woman. That just skews me out, that remark. Like, do we have to have a scene where the men remark behind his back even on how hot Daniel's wife is? On one hand, I get it because guys do talk about that kind of crap. I mean, we all do, but does it really need to be in a TV show like that? Lusting after someone else's wife. Isn't there a thing in the Bible that says don't? To me, it just reiterates that women are considered a piece of meat. The Ogolat. And again, that's nitpicking. I get it. And yet, as a woman, seeing how often we get bombarded with such references, images, behavior, both fictional and reality, just don't feel class appropriate or whatever you want to call it. Yes, she's a beautiful woman. I too see that, but just... Ew. Suddenly, the gate activates. Similar to Earth, Serpent Guards walk through and start firing immediately, hitting a few Abedonians. Quickly, the Serpent Guards have the upper hand, while Skara and Sharae are captured by none other than Till. Look, asks Skara, this is not your weapon, where did you get it? And bless Skara, the boy's got some spirit, he spits in Tilk's face. Tilk then brings him to his master, who lowers his helmet. He responds with, good choice to perfect specimen, thus indicating probably that they intend to use Skara as a host. Next, they bring him Sharae. He studies her face, checking out her teeth, if she really is. <clears throat> Piece of meat. <clears throat> Saying she might be the one. The one what? We don't know. Yet. He knocks her out with the hand device. A guard starts to dial the Stargate. Ferretti, though injured and barely conscious, watches for the gate. They leave through the gate with Sharae and Skara. A funny bit there. Just before they start walking through the gate, you see that the actor playing Skara still has his head up and then all of a sudden just flops back. Presumably they yelled action and he forgot that he was supposed to be unconscious.
Daniel and the team returns, they quickly learn that Skara and Share were taken by what they think is Ra. A boy named Bola tells them that they took them through the Chapa'ai. This is the first time that we hear the presumably ancient Egyptian phrase for the Stargate being Chapa'ai. O'Neill, forever on the ball, says to Daniel, the only way we're going to get him back is for you to come home with us, for Eddie may have seen the coordinates. Daniel realizes O'Neill's right and that he has to turn home. That's the only true chance he has of ever seeing his wife again. He just for the Abedonians to gather around. He tells them after we go through the Chapa'ai you have to bury it like we did before and then leave. One of the boys asks him will you come back? Daniel says he can't, nobody, not for a long time and states nothing good can ever come to gate. And that's when my heart gets a little twinge when the Abedonian boy responds but you came through Daniel. I mean oh I'm invested here people. <laughs> it's still the, the the pilot episode of a TV show but I'm already so invested. Daniel tells him in one year, one year from this day which I mean, it's gonna be a little awkward. Like, how do you there calculate a year? Because we just learned that the a day on Abydos is 36 hours, and we have 24 hours. But then, how long does your planet take to make a loop de loop around the sun, and thus constitute a year? But let's just go with the fact that Daniel knows, and that the measurement of a year is something that they all agree upon. A year? <laughs> he says, in one year, he will try to bring Share home with them. If he doesn't make it back, then they must bury the gate. His voice breaks, and they all gather around to hug him, to say goodbye, touching his head. I mean, oh, scene moved me. Oddly enough, I mean, I've seen it dozens of times throughout the years, decade, but still that scene moved me. Like he made such a difference in their lives. They were enslaved to Ra for millennia and them coming through the gate, liberating them from Ra. So beautiful. <laughs> Back on Earth at embarkation room, gate room, C team returns from Abydos, bringing with them the injured members of their respective teams who survived the attack on Abydos. After they've all seemingly come through the gate, Major Samuels yells into a walkie-talkie, close the iris. Next, we see that there's a giant metal-like contraption that seems to come from within the gate and closes over the wormhole, like a shield. O'Neill learns that they've got an iris now to shield them from any unwelcome surprise. That little fucker better be open when you come through, otherwise you're gonna flat against the iris. Like a bug on a windshield. He gives Hammond the news that the Abedonian settlement was attacked by the same group that attacked Stargate Command and that Daniel's wife and brother-in-law were both kidnapped. Daniel requests to be on the team that goes after Share and Skara, but General Hammond is not a fan. Angrily responds, you are in no position to make demands, Jackson. And for General Hammond, that is snippy. He is not a happy camper. And for a change, someone is not an instant fan of Daniel Jackson. Next, we appear to see where Tilk and fellow Serpent Guard's master have taken Share and Skara. Tilk and some other Serpent Guards enter a room full of people seemingly from all different kinds of places, including Share and Skara. Tilk points out that Share is to be taken, despite her protests saying, I'm not afraid of you. Again, strong woman. <laughs> Back on Earth, Dak invites Daniel to come home with him. Back at Jack's house, the guys drink a beer and they talk. Daniel wonders when he's Jack's wife. Jack tells him probably never, seeing that after he came home from Abydos the first time, she'd already left. Jack continues on explaining that he thinks in her heart she forgave him, but she just couldn't forget. Daniel asks about you and implies, I'm the opposite. I'll never forgive myself, but sometimes I can forget. So it beautifully shows how grief can be processed, the responsibility you feel for what happens can greatly shape how you experience and process your grief. For those not in the know, just before the Abedonian mission, O'Neill's only son accidentally shot and killed himself with a gun, presumably Jack's gun. 
Next, we catch up with a harem full of women where we see the airman that was abducted by Tilk and his mask at the beginning of the episode. She's all decked out in a, a Roman wardrobe-esque gown, I think you could call it. We also see that Share is being held here. And throughout this episode, there are cultural influences from all around the globe. I don't know if that was intended to either show off their skills or to make it less monotone. At the same time, it comes across as a little messy, seeing that the whole shtick was ancient Egyptian culture and it was so heavily represented with Ra. And now this dude, who is yet to be named. But now the harem leans more, a little more towards Roman culture than Egyptian. And later on, you see that more and more different cultures rep I never noticed it as much as I this time around. Around, but hey, now I'm looking for things to comment on, so. But this time around, for the first time, it felt messy as in pick a lane. But luckily, it's just the start of a beautiful friendship. This television show has some gifted people working. I mean, the costume designer, the location manager, the makeup artist, the hairdressers, production designer, the set designers, props designer, photography, posers, effects artists. They had skills. Anyway, back to the lady. She gets selected by Tilk and taken from the room to his master, who's all decked out in another flamboyant outfit, still with the ball cap. And now we learn what the intention of all the kidnapping is. Apparently, he is looking for a vessel for his queen. They rip off her clothes, and then the master, who is yet to be named, uh, seems to approve. He again uses the, the hand device to mellow her out to make her more compliant. He calls a woman who has that same pouch that we saw earlier in the episode, and from it emerges a creepy ass... <laughs> well, they're gonna call them symbiotes, so let's call it a symbiote uh, that peeps out and apparently deems the lady unworthy. So it crawls back in and the lady carrying the symbiote walks away. The master in all the flamboyant outfits, he now realizes that as a vessel she's rejected, so now she's no longer useful, so with the hand device he kills the US Airman. Throughout the proceedings, we keep seeing Tilk playing a prominent role in kidnapping, selecting what woman to present to his master, and also in this scene, camera often shows Tilk's reaction. And though there's not a lot of expression there, it does appear to affect him what's happening. In the next scene, we return to Earth where we see them gathering for a meeting. When Hammond asks who's coming through the Stargate, Daniel has an epiphany. He says Ra played a god, the sun god. He borrowed the religion and culture of the ancient Egyptians, and then he used it to enslave them. He wanted the people of Abydos to believe he was the only god. Ra may have not been the last of his race after all. And then Kowalski jokingly says maybe he has a brother, Ray, which always gets a chuckle out of me. It's a really bad joke, but oddly enough, it does work. Daniel starts brainstorming, stating Ra's race was dying, and he survived by taking over the body of a human host, an Egyptian boy. He then hypothesizes that why couldn't more of his kind do that? Captain Carter reveals that they're feeding the revised coordinates found on the star map on Abydos into the targeting computer, estimating that it will calculate and spit out two or three destinations a month, thus basically giving them a little timetable where every three month they can go to one or two different planets to explore. President of the United States has ordered the formation of nine teams. O'Neill will be leading a team designated SG-1. Major Kowalski will lead SG-2. And the team's duties will be to perform reconnaissance, determine threats, and if possible, make peaceful contact with the people of those worlds. These teams will operate on a covert top-secret basis. No one will know of their existence except the president and the joint chief, thus making the whole plausible deniability thing plausible. As in it's happening, but shh, it's top-secret, no, no. 
Next, they learn that Ferretti is awake. Of course, only in movies and TV shows, we're lucky that Ferretti blocks the entire Stargate address so that we can keep the momentum going. Give SG-1 team a place to explore and rescue, preferably. Although we already know it's too late for the airmen. Ferretti apparently saw all the seven symbols so he knows where Skara and Sharae were taken. Thus, the first mission is a go. Apparently, I'm not the only one that don't like Samuels because when they move out to go through the gate, Samuel says to Kowalski, I kind of wish I was going with you. And Kowalski says, yeah, kind of glad you're staying behind. I mean, it's not just me, evidently. Do not forget that Daniel is a geek. The moment that they arrive on the planet, he sneezes and asks, does anyone have a Kleenex? Yes, we get it. Daniel Jackson is a nerd. Plus, can anyone say product placement? Daniel deduces from the setup that the gate must be an integral part of their spiritual culture because around the gate it's like a little Stonehenge kind of idea. I mean, the location manager of this television show. Bless you, you make me fall in love with British Columbia. Honestly. Incidentally, a few years later, what made me extra happy was that a lot of Supernatural but was also shot in British Columbia. You can never have enough of that beautiful landscape. Just It makes me want to move to Canada. And we have a little misogyny where Carter reports back to O'Neill and O'Neill asks, sound about right, Kowalski? Why does another man have to judge a woman's work? Not cool. Luckily, they themselves seem to realize this as Sam gives him a bitch face. I wonder if that bitch face was scripted. We turn to the harem where all the women are being held and Tilk now chooses Sharae, clearly signifying that the team needs to hurry the fuck up if they want to save her. Next we see Sharae being brought before the man with the flamboyant outfit. And she is a fighter, I mean she bites one of the guards. You go girl. They rip off her clothes, and apparently it matters via which medium you are watching this. I myself am watching it on DVD, because I got the DVD, so I get full frontal. But apparently that was a little more than the actress bargained for. I'm very sorry to hear that. So on streaming services, they zoomed in a little more where you don't see the lady full frontal. Having millions on millions for all eternity. See you like that. You deserve the right to at any point in time say, you know what, I want to make it a little less full frontal. You know, this was filmed in 1997. That was before the whole internet session madness took off. So yeah, filming this back then must have seemed a lot more innocent and a lot less haunting than filming stuff like this now. People judge that bullshit. I know a lot of shaming goes on. Now with the whole David statue, people are so uptight trying to control other people's body because it's always that. It's never anything to do with your own body. No, it's always you want to control other people's bodies and what they do with it. They have started to level the playing field. Men have started to bear all as well. In its own right, I can appreciate. And I mean, yeah. With women, it's assumed, I always felt. I mean, I'm not opposed. Not in the slightest. Oh, Lord have mercy. Dutch movies, it kind of became a trademark that a movie wasn't a truly Dutch movie if there wasn't a full frontal titty scene or whatever. And it got to the point where I got more annoyed by it than found it in any way, shape, or form appealing or a turn on because it served absolutely no purpose to the entire storyline. It was just, we're Dutch. We are apparently kinds of people that are very free loving or nudists at heart or something and just show off nudity like that but with the whole patriarchal toxic masculinity always viewing and treating women as a piece of meat and that has been perpetuated for many many years and then into addition to him the whole increased exposure to porn and Andrew Tate's of the world quickly escalated 
you know, maybe me thinking this and especially me recording this and putting this out there be seen as inappropriate. What can I say? I'm a therapist. I'm used to talking about all the uncomfortable crap, able to talk about anything and everything. What are the job description? Quite comfortable to talk about stuff like that. Probably more than your average Joe. I mean, after treating addiction, sex addiction, porn addiction, you kind of get used to talking about all of the things. I mean, we therapists are there for you to have the uncomfortable conversations with. To be able to share without worrying how we may view you or that we may judge you because that is not part of our job description. If anything, it's the opposite. We are here not to judge. I you to have a certain mindset. I am the kind of person that likes to break barriers and I actually like talking about all the taboo things to make them no longer taboo because a lot of misconceptions, assumptions that make asses of a lot of people can be such a waste of time and quite damaging actually. Plus, I'm a firm believer sharing is caring and part of recovery, be it for an addiction or anything else, sharing is healing. It's finding your voice, it's owning your voice, it's claiming your story. So yeah, I'm all about let's talk about it. All of it. All the uncomfortable, awkward, taboo, dirty, freaky, lovely, adorable, funny, hilarious, silly little thing. As you may have noticed, my podcast channels and episodes, I tend to share a lot of myself. And yes, of course, and there's a therapist if you need to have a certain professionalism and you don't just freely tell stuff about your own life during therapy sessions with your client. Where as a therapist, you are actually presumed not to share anything about your own private life. And if you do decide to share that there is a very specific reason and goal that you have in mind to make that judgment, you have to use your professional assessment. Here, my take on it is I'm not here as your therapist. I'm here as Leila, who just happens to work as a therapist. I'm here as a whole person, not just my role as a therapist. So basically, getting a lot of free therapeutic intervention techniques explained and educational tidbit shared overall i'm trying to create a safe space to share where i'm opening the door setting the stage so to speak plus i'm on here with only my first name and not my last name and i even considered using you know a nom the plume or whatever you call it at the same time i'm like no i am spilling my guts basically asking others to do the same so yeah authentic self here we go i'm making it up as i go people there are exceptions to every rule. Always to paint you a whole picture of how it would look like if you would share something as a therapist with your client when adding personal experience can actually help your client. For that, you have to make a professional assessment what the reason is that you share this information with the client and make damn sure there is no chance of projection or anything that could be considered a threat to your position as a therapist. Or, of course, it's damaging to the client. Hopefully that what you're sharing has a clear goal. I mean, I had a client once that got bullied by kids his own age. School even shamed him for it, for having presumably ADHD. And he felt shunned and rejected and that he was stupid. And just he felt really bad about it. And he claimed he didn't know anyone that had ADHD. ADHD or ADD. So I said, like, would you be surprised if I told you that I have ADD? And he was very surprised. <laughs> His mom told me he kept reminding himself that, you know, even Leila has it. As it turned out, knowledge seemingly helped him, except that he quite possibly did have ADHD. But yeah, he was very surprised that someone like me could also have ADHD because in his eyes, I was the very smart person that knew everything. So when he tried to explain something about Minecraft to me that I didn't yet know, he was all shocked that he could teach teach me something. That can happen, you know, I teach you stuff, you teach me stuff, what we're doing here. And that blew his mind. In his mind, I was all-knowing. Kids sometimes are adorable. 
And it can be the same when someone gets the diagnosis of dyslexia. A lot of people still associate dyslexia with, oh, then my kid must be stupid. Being able to then share that the greatest minds of the past century had dyslexia, had ADHD, were neurodivergent. That Albert Einstein had dyslexia. Leonardo da Vinci, arguably the greatest minds of the past century, were neurodivergent. And that changes the image that people have of a certain order. Unfortunately, just one person at a time, but hey, I try. The term disorder has such a negative consonance to it. That's why I like the term neurodivergent. It just means that you differ. And difference is not really a bad thing. It's just different. Unfortunately, in our world, being different right now means that you get shunned, persecuted, banned, jailed, criminalized, vilified, assaulted, murdered. Therefore, with this trend that I'm seeing that I greatly dislike is that as soon as someone is labeled with a certain disorder, people can see you as inferior or treat you as less worthy. And that is just bull. Shit. Getting diagnosed with a particular disorder is supposed to help you understand yourself and in knowing what type of disorder you have can lead to certain tools that can help you manage it, learn to deal with it, make other people around you better understand you. It was supposed to be, in my eyes, something that would help others understand you quicker, not use it to make you feel inferior to them. Again, ableism, not okay. People tend to forget is that the behavior described in the criteria utilized to make a diagnosis refers to behaviors and traits that we all possess, greater or lesser extent, every single human on the planet. For those of you interested in learning a little more about yourself, during my cognitive behavioral therapy course, my teacher suggested that we go check out VIA Institute, where you can do a 24 personality strength test for free, where it ranks 24 strengths. I did that one, and when I saw my top five, I was like, oh, yeah. Now I get why I struggle so much in this society. I mean, my top five is, wait, what was it? If I can, uh, My top five, honesty, fairness, appreciation of beauty and excellence, kindness, and love. Those don't tend to exactly be qualities that people rank all that high, seemingly today. This kind of snowballed into someone saying, oh, you should also take the 16 personality to see what kind of personality type you are. <clears throat> so I did that. And then I found out that apparently I am an INFG, an introverted intuitive feeling judging, also known as an advocate. And back then, discovering that I possess these qualities in this format connected to this label was finding my instruction manual to myself. Because up until that point, I just felt weird. One of a kind and not in a good way. Just never fitting in. It wasn't a happy feel. Basically, I just felt alien in a world of humans. I have this saying like, too alien for this planet, too human for outer space. That's me. Or that feels like me. And just reading characteristics of INFG, I thought, well, hey, glad to know. It's not just me. I recognized a lot of myself in it. And thus also realizing, okay, so this is a personality type that a lot of other people have as well. So it's just, I'm different from the people surrounding. People that just did not match me. That was an eye-opener, truly. First in self-acceptance and in also starting to learn to recognize my own behavioral patterns where I tried to shrink myself, mistake other people's emotions for my own, and had a serious tendency of people-pleasing. That one was the first to go. I see it all again as a Venn diagram, not just black and white little squares that you can be shoved into, because apparently I'm an INFG, apparently I'm an Agram 9, apparently I'm type 9, I'm neurodivergent, I have ADD, uh, some would say empath, others would say trauma survivor, or I'm a highly sensitive person, or you know, I don't know. Personally, whatever diagnosis or label helps you understand yourself better, God bless, all for it, win-win. But oftentimes what I see is that people weaponize diagnoses, that's why I usually, 
if I recognize certain characteristics, I don't instantly say, I want to test you. I always weigh the pros and cons of assessing someone through diagnostic tools to give them a diagnosis. I'm highlighting that you show certain characteristics associated with a certain diagnosis, and thus I can provide you with the tools that help you, and that's enough for you, that's fine by me. Only if I think that getting an actual diagnosis either opens doors for you that otherwise wouldn't, will I push for you to get the actual diagnosis. My firm belief is that getting a diagnosis is supposed to help you, and when people want to weaponize it, I'm a little apprehensive of trying to diagnose Because you have people that use it as a shield, people that use it against you, especially with ADHD, autism, dyslexia. I often see it weaponized to exclude, to, and even by teachers, to give kids such a negative self-image, self-worth. I did my thesis on it, actually. The impact of having a diagnosis on a kid's self-esteem and that it significantly impacts how they're viewed, how they're treated. It impacts truancy. There's significant more chance for dropping out. Our school system is not equipped to deal with kids that are neurodivergent and, if anything, it makes them feel like outcasts, like failures, and that shit breaks my heart. Just, it's all necessary. All different walks of life, all different career paths. We need it all. Oh, and we, we have created a society where there's such a strict regimen in education, in uh, career paths that are deemed worthy and ones that aren't and that are a waste of time. That we do each other and ourselves a disservice. Everyone has their strengths. Everyone has to know your weaknesses and capitalize on your strengths. That is what we all should do and promote that in others. Like I've seen it. I think to some extent I experienced it. I actually was pretty good at school. But I also think that's because I put a lot of work into it. Because mainly I was just told that my brain was the only thing I had going. Verbatim actually told that my brain was the only thing going. So you can imagine the pressure I felt at succeeding academically. And I mean, in the end, I did succeed academically. And now I'm considering a complete career switch because this is just not working. It's killing. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> actually, even another podcast. I talk about more of that on my Let's Review 2023 episode. But here we are reviewing Stargate. Lord have mercy. I'm so sorry. This is kind of what you get. This is me, all of me, all different sides of me. It is all connected. Oh, that's a little manifest for you there. If you know, you know. To me, nudity became more of, oh, alright, show some skin, very daring, la-di-da, instead of it actually having any relevance to the story, which incidentally, in this case, I felt it does. With this storyline, the nudity, for me, did make sense, but even then, you know, you can imply it without actually having show it, especially if the actress isn't comfortable with it. So I gotta give props to the people that decided to, seeing that it's now on a streaming platform and again reaching a whole new generation audience, that you reserve the right as the actress that bears all, the actor that bears all, that you are allowed to say, you know what, maybe make it a little more conservative. Here it's all about a symbiote choosing its outer vessel for thousands of years to come. If you go back to Ra, who took a boy 2000 BC and was still 1990 something, walking around in that little me suit. So yeah, I get that you want to check it out. So in this case, I got it. For the actress though, I can fully understand. I mean, you're already there being filmed surrounded by all sorts of peeps. Incidentally, also the soon-to-be bestie or bestie, new bestie of your soon-to-be baby daddy. Now knowing that Michael Shanks, who plays Daniel Jackson, and Vatiari Bandera, who plays Sharae, they met on the show, they fell in love, and they... Baby? 
and Michael Shanks and the actor that plays Tilk, Christopher Judge, became really close friends. So he was in the room there too. He saw her naked. And then we have the very inappropriate thought, I wonder who saw her naked first. Was it Chris or was it Michael? That's just maybe for others just like, whoa, Layla, ew, inappropriate. For those people, I say, I'm sorry. Let me clarify. No, not pervy because it's a nude scene. I, I always wonder about that. So I always wonder what the timeline was. That's when I learned that actors that played together ended up dating each other in real life. I always wonder what came first. Like, did you fall in love first or did you do those scenes and then fell in love? Or like, is it a bleed through from your character to reality? And sometimes couples stay together. Some couples are still together after decades. So that's beautiful. I mean, one of the most infamous ones, I think, with The Notebook. Love that movie. I was stunned to hear that apparently at the beginning of filming, or during filming even, they couldn't stand each other. But then after the filming ended, or somewhere in between, they actually did fall in love, and they did date for a while. But yeah, I always wonder about that. What came first? Like the intimacy on screen or in real life, be it making out or, you know, go full frontal. I mean, how awesome is it to have fun working and then meeting your partner that way? I can only imagine how that could be. Like the awkwardness if you have to play in love or a couple or be intimate together on screen before you're actually intimate together. I really wonder how you go about that because in real life you're actually feeling all those exciting, I really like you feelings. And at the same time, you have to stay professional. <laughs> I do not know how they do that, truly. Especially with all actors that do nude scenes, right? Basically, anyone and everyone that saw that saw you naked. I mean, they got intimacy coordinators now. I don't know if they had that back then. I mean, I'm not shy, but get naked in front of an entire crew that you know, film it. I mean, this was a pilot episode. They didn't know each other. Maybe that makes it better. I don't know. <laughs> but to think that this is like, hello, this is my first day on the job. Let's get naked as the only person in the room. I mean, if you're all getting naked, that's fine. You know, let it all hang out but yeah as the only one and i mean incidentally in this particular episode she wasn't the only one but at the, that scene being filmed she was the only one or i don't know if hers in the airman scene executive thing that the camera setup was the same apart from that having to add that extra tension of maybe possibly liking someone that's there on the set or is friends with that person yeah i really wonder how that feels how you do that I guess in these kinds of instances, it's both me being a therapist, in addition to my interest in the whole creative process. Just like I mentioned in my other, other podcast episode, truly believe had I not had a physical disability, and thus people always telling the only thing that I could do was a 9 to 5 desk job, being told explicitly that anything to do with the arts was out of reach, impossible for me, in addition to all my family trauma drama that I could not for the life of me get away from for the longest time. I would have blown this popsicle stand so long ago and I would have gone into the arts. Most definitely. Preferably on the other side of the planet to get as far away from my family as I possibly could. Seriously. I think this is also a little thus vicariously living through or something. Like everything and anything to do with content creation, be it writing, producing, directing, having all these decades of consuming all kinds of media that greatly inspires me. It has only shown me more that entertainment, creating content, there are infinite ways to create, to participate. I really think about how it was filmed, how it was created, what inspired the writer, what inspired to film it in that particular setting with that particular lighting. Why did the actor do that with his eyebrow? I now think a whole lot more, not just about the content and appreciate that. I also have grown think about the whole process of make the content that I'm watching. All those things that result in some so many beloved lives. For some people it's maybe making a living, but for others, I mean, music, television, movies, 
literature too, of course, let's just, you know, collectively call it media, has shaped me. It has helped me feel less alone. It's helped feel understood. It's helped me escape <laughs> when I really needed an escape. My crazy ass wacko do life. But yeah, it was always there. For me, it was coming home. It was feeling safe. It was feeling seen. It was a way to escape. an escape to a world, a universe that was a whole hell of a lot better than the one we were residing in. So I don't think it'd be exaggerated if I said it's what got me. Oh, that's a One Tree Hill reference. Your art matters. It's what got me here. And right now, the writers are on strike. You have my full support. Keep going, because without you, all this beautiful content that helps so many people feel understood. Make us feel safe. Make us feel seen. Give us a voice that feels like home, even when you're locked inside your home with a family that rarely tolerates you, let alone love you. It gives you a, a window to a better world. And knowing that just because you don't match your environment doesn't say anything about you being wrong that there's something wrong with you it's just that you're surrounded by people who don't match you but that don't mean that there aren't people out there that do match you and that for me was such an eye i grew up in a family unit community that i felt misunderstood by barely tolerated by shunned shamed just in no way shape or form comfortable in so for me art in whatever shape it was available to me saved me and here I am creating my own content. Oh, and we've come full circle. There I go again with my brain fart train moment. Let's get back to the episode. Right, so Share is being taken to the dude in the flamboyant outfit. Gets stripped. Next, he uses the hand device to incapacitate her. And they lay her down on the table. Again, the lady with the symbiote in the belly comes out and fuckity fuck fuck. The symbiote now does approve and Share is chosen to be its vessel. And it's quite a scene to behold. The whole taking possession of gnarly. I mean, beautifully filmed, beautifully executed, beautifully acted, beautifully done. But just imagine... Imagine yourself being her. Oi! Though, yes, there is, I mean, it's the mid-90s, there is serious misogyny going on here. But I also love this show because at the same time called out patriarchal customs such as misogyny. Because when Carter, O'Neill, and Daniel are walking, Carter asks, Dr. Jackson, tell me more about Sheree. How did you meet? So Daniel knows this story is a little awkward. O'Neill happily jumps in, knowing no doubt that this will piss her off, and said she was a gift. And Daniel says, she was, actually, from the Elders of Abydos the first time we were there. Carter is, rightfully so, absolutely raged with that little fun fact. And responds, and you accept it? You know, that's those redeeming moments that I love about this show. Not afraid to call out the patriarchal, misogynistic customs that are just not of this age and are so toxic. When coming upon villagers, Daniel approaches them and tries to make contact. Incidentally, this is one of the rare moments where there is a very clear language barrier. Of course, to make this show work in the long run, you couldn't have this talking with hands and feet and barely understanding each other happen, because then how are you going to make an episode of 45 minutes if the first 40 minutes are used to even say, hi, I come in peace? At a certain point, we just don't talk about it, that apparently people on other planets have learned to speak English or American, apparently developed along even though they haven't been on our planet in over 4,000 years, but hey, let's roll with it. Next, they're taken to the village Chulak. Buildings, the wardrobe, the makeup of the entire set seems to be ancient Greek Roman inspired. So with the turbans, you go a little more towards the Asian. It's a little, like I said, for me this time around, it came across more as messy, but I know it looks beautiful. And I think they, I don't know if it's an intentional pun or if it's 
just now the first time that I clock it. Um, <laughs> the horn is blown. Everyone, when the horn is blown, bows down towards the front of the table. And Jackson, being the geologist, anthropologist that he is, also bows down. Where Carter and O'Neill look at him like, what you doing? And Jackson says, when in Rome. And I mean, it really looks like ancient Rome, so kudos. The serpent guards, the dude in the shiny golden flamboyant outfits. Good lord, they become more flamboyant that's not a word. Every time we see him. And he says, kneel before your queen. And as he unveils the queen, we see that it is Sharae. <laughs> Daniel gets up and tries to approach her, but she seemingly doesn't recognize him. This is emphasized when her eyes glow. Shortly thereafter, the dude flings Daniel across the room with his hand device. Next, O'Neill tries to take aim and Sharae, who's not really Sharae anymore, steps in front of him, thus making O'Neill pause, and he gets knocked out. Just in this short scene, so much happens that gives you all sorts of feels. Daniel wakes up after seemingly being unconscious for hours, and they are now in the dungeon with Skara! It's a reunion! It's not only a reunion with Skara, it's also a reunion with Till, who roughly grabs a hold of O'Neill's wrist, asking him what contraption that is on his arm. A watch. And this is why we- I didn't this before, and this is why we first hear the term Goa'uld when Tilk says that the watch isn't Goa'uld technology. So this again expands the universe into the alien is a certain kind of race that takes possession of the human body and their technology apparently is called Goa'uld. I mean, already kind of figured, we know they don't know. The Pouchy people are called Jaffa and that the Stargate apparently is called the Chapai. It's a very education episode. Next, we also finally officially learn the name of the dude in the golden flamboyant outfits is named Apophis, as Daniel now finally identifies him. Ron is the sun god, and Apophis is the serpent god, his rival. It's all directly from the Book of the Dead of the Ancient Egyptian Pantheon. Shortly after, apparently for no good reason, showing Tilk where they're from. When he asks, where are you from? Daniel gives him the earth symbol, and like, he's the enemy. He's the one that took your wife, that took all of you, kidnapped you, and God only knows intends to do what with you, but you just happily tell him exactly where you're from, which incidentally is also on your arm. Catch right there! Next, Tilk comes back into the dungeon and decrees something in Jaffa speak, which Skara translates as they are going to choose the children of the gods, thus taking ownership of the title of the episode. Enter Apophis and his queen being hauled in on a litter, what are you, litter box? No, that's for a kitty. Okay, so I genuinely had to look this up because in my brain somewhere it stuck litter. It's actually indeed called a litter, but I think the more fancy name could be a palaquin, but yeah, like a, a, a litter with curtains. But with litter, I think litter box for a kitty, so yeah, let's go with palanquin. If I even pronounced that correctly, I don't know. Ask Google. And here we already see there's a little something-something going on between O'Neill and Tilk. Because when Tilk commands everyone to kneel before their masters, O'Neill refuses until he gets a little nod from Tilk. Clearly, Skara also is not feeling subjugating himself once again to someone who claims to be a god. I mean, after your entire life for millennia, your society, leaving to be indentured slaves to, as you now have learned, false gods. And then a few years later having to do it again? Yeah, I feel him. But right now, he has no other choice. So he too finally... 
clearly very unhappy. Also Niels. Daniel is understandably upset seeing that Sharae is just watching this all happen and seemingly does not recognize him. To the point where Daniel becomes a little suicidal and grabs hold of one of the robes masters to grab their attention and asks like what would I remember if you choose me? Something of the host must survive. In that instance all shit hits the fan yet again when now they choose not Daniel but Skara. The Skara is led away, Apophis orders the rest to be killed and leaves. The serpent guards including Tilk march into the room and people start running around screaming and O'Neill looks Tilk in the eye and says I can save these people help me. Tilk seems to, you know, consider the offer. He snidely responds with, many have said that. And you think, uh-oh. But then suddenly he turns his weapon around, shoots one of the serpent guards, and says, but you are the first I believe could do it. Oh, I felt that. He tosses his staff weapon to O'Neill and they liberate everyone. After eliminating the threat, they blow holes in the back of the dungeon and crawl out. When everyone's evacuated, Tilk is the only one remaining. O'Neill calls, come on. And this kind of struck me as shocking that Tilk did all this expecting to stay behind and die. Because he responds with, I have nowhere to go. And then O'Neill being, you know, off the cuff and awesome, responds with, for this, you can stay at my place. But yeah, it's kind of sad to think that he would do this. He would betray everything that he devoted his entire life to saving these people, but then expecting to just remain behind and get killed for his treason. But luckily, he now has a friend in O'Neill. And he's coming with us. Yay! On stroll back to the Stargate, Tilk now fully explains what is a Jaffa. A Jaffa is bred to serve so they may live. As in, they, the gods. As in, the creepy little bugger that drills into your <clears throat> skull and takes up residence in your brain. Tilk shows them his larval Goa'uld, like the, the little baby, in his pouch. Again, ew. But beautifully done. <laughs> Showing it to the rest, everyone is like, ew, okay, get rid of it. But Tilk explains in exchange for carrying the infant go old until maturity, he is allowed to live a long and healthy life. I mean, sounds like a good deal, but eh. Next, we see Skara accompanied by, well, now his friends, I guess, because you clearly see that that is not Skara anymore. Then also Apophis and his queen, Share, are beamed from a ship near the Stargate. And next, the ship takes off, morphs a little, into now one of the ships that we saw previously in the movie, where we see, presumably, giant staff weapons come out of the wings. And it starts to go after our group of friends who are now meandering through the forest, trying to get to the gate. And again, beautifully shot, the flight of the, well, they're going to call it a glider, so I'm going to call it a glider, the spaceship, the tiny spaceship. And they say they start shooting at the people and the explosions and the responses and the sounds. It, just, oof, it really gets you, it really draws you in. Just when it looks when that all is lost, in comes Kowalski with the freaking bazooka. He shoots the glider out of the sky. It crashes near the gate where Apophis is a little pissed off. Now watches it crash into the ground and he angrily walks through the gate. He runs up the hill towards the Stargate where they see Skara about to leave through the gate. O'Neill really doesn't seem to believe Tilk when he says that nothing of the host survives. So now O'Neill's being a little suicidal and he runs down the hill towards Skara trying to to connect, but no. We see Skada approach with a little smirk on his face, but then his eyes glow and he blasts O'Neill with his very own little hand device. 
from planet Earth, Shmukri Samuels, informs General Hammond that the deadline has been reached and they, according to protocol, are now supposed to lock out the transmitter codes and seal up the iris. But you see that Hammond is not really feeling it, so he's delaying, and luckily so, because just at that point, a wormhole is established, but not before SG2 members are up on a hill looking for hostiles, spotting them, and they're up on a hill and they stand up. I mean, are you trying to make yourself a very visible target? Don't make no sense, but hey, whatever. After the battalion of Jaffa exits the trees and comes within firing range, I suppose, they start shooting at each other while Daniel is apparently having some difficulty. Like, didn't he figure this out before what the gate coordinates were to go back home? But okay, take your time. No pressure. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Wormhole is established, code is sent, and thus the iris open. We see a Neanderthal ogre kind of fella seemingly kill a Jaffa with his bare hand. Okay. And the Jaffa drops next to Kowalski and we see the larva go old. <gasps> Jump into Kowalski's neck. Oh. Still comes through the gate to Earth, he willingly hands over his weapon to Captain Carter. You clearly see that the people in the gate room are like, what's this now? Because as they remember him being the invader that kidnapped one of their airmen. Understandably, they're a little concerned. Finally, O'Neill, Kowalski, and Casey get through the gate, so the iris close and you hear all these little thuds. Apparently that's all the Jaffa coming through the gate, but not actually making it. Kind of fun that they add the effect of like thuds, like you really envision them coming through the wormhole and then slap on the iris. I wonder if every time after the wormhole closes, they need to like clean the iris with all the splatter like you do a windshield. Does it have wipers? Hmm. Something that's never answered? I mean, makes you think. Clearly, the Welcome Home Committee does not particularly want to embrace Tilk, but O'Neill says he saved our lives, and if, if you accept my recommendation, sir, he will join SG-1. Okay. <laughs> Aim high, I guess. Sure. Sir Hammond says that tomorrow we're going to be debriefing. We see a beautiful, a little foreshadowing shot of SG-1 standing in front of the gate. Captain Carter, Daniel Jackson, Colonel Jack O'Neill, and Tilk. The newly, presumably formed SG-1 walks off the ramp and leaves the gate room, seemingly leaving Kowalski as the singular person left in the entire room. Now we clearly saw a larval go old jump up into the neck of Kowalski, yet he seemingly is still Kowalski apart from maybe a killer headache. Mm, okay. We see him walking down the ramp and just when you th oh maybe he's okay. Uh-uh. His eyes glow. And that is the end of the first episode. I mean, hello. That is how you do it, people. I mean, this show seemingly has it all. There is humor, nudity, attractive half-naked men and women, little culture, and top that off with explosions and a bazooka. What more could a person possibly want? That is how you engage your audience and make them want to come back for more. I know I do. How about you? Yeah.